0: Amen. You may be seated. And if you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We'll be concluding this chapter today. Romans chapter 7 verses 13 through 25. Romans 7 verses 13 through 25. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at church in the square. And I love you all. Grateful to be navigating This season and situation with you, not just in a pandemic, but in Romans too. I guess that has a double meaning. Um, Grateful to get to open up uh, God's Word together. One of the things that we'll tackle in this particular portion of Scripture, and also next week we're going to take a break, From Romans because it's Halloween and we thought that it would be fitting to be clear about spiritual warfare and understanding in particular what the Bible teaches about Satan. Um, And so buckle up. He does not like when we get clarity about who he is. The evil one does not like when we know him, when he cannot remain mysterious in the shadows of our spiritual life. And so we're grateful for a time to get to do that uh, next Sunday. But today we sort of, through this text providentially, are going to be introduced, and some of you perhaps for the very first time, into a kind of spiritual warfare language. And that kind of language, warlike language, is not popular, is it? When we use these kinds of words, this kind of war, these words of war or warfare in common conversation, many are hesitant because it may detract from or minimize the horrors and sacrifices of actual military conflict. But also, even in the spiritual context, we're we're leery, if not hesitant, to use this kind of language, because when we use that kind of language, spiritual warfare kind of language, it may marginalize those who are more practically minded Christians, or it may pigeonhole you, the one who uses that kind of language, as really sensational or charismatic or ultimately extreme in your thinking uh, and belief system. However when we open up the New Testament, few things are more clear than the fact and reality that you and I are in the middle of an ongoing spiritual conflict within a spiritual realm. So there is a spiritual realm of which we are often very blind and negligent, where we we cannot see it, we cannot discern it on our own, and yet it is something where there's a battle, there's a conflict going on. See, we are told in Ephesians chapter six, perhaps most power, or most popularly, that we our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? It's against cosmic powers. And so, what does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter six? Put on the full armor of God. Some of you, perhaps even growing up in the church, literally made armor and literally put it on, and were taught every day when you wake up, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Right? I heard some snaps. Right? This is this is what many of us grew up thinking about spiritual or the most of which we were exposed to spiritual conflict that we were a part of. But it's not just in Ephesians 6. In First Peter, Satan is described by Peter as a prowling and roaring lion who desires to devour you, desires to devour me. And so what Peter instructs his readers is that he is our enemy and we must be on our guard. And now in Romans chapter 7, if you'll move ahead to verses 21 and 23... Here's what Paul says, and here's sort of like an anchor, if you will, of this particular passage. He says, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Did you hear that, church? Evil lies close at hand, Not only so, but Paul says, members waging war against my mind. Not only here, but throughout our passage today, spiritual conflict is going to be central. Now, as we've already alluded, different Christian contexts and generations have viewed spiritual warfare very differently. All you need to do is visit a church outside of the United States to be given a very different view of spiritual warfare and an understanding of the spiritual realm. And if I can make then some very broad sweeping oversimplifications for the sake of our learning today. Though there are remnants and particularly, particular traditions within Christianity within the United States that take spiritual warfare very seriously, since the Enlightenment, more and more modern American Christians view the spiritual realm not only as tame but likely unreal. People who claim to follow Jesus believe that the spiritual realm is tame and not something to be leery of or even concerned about, even if it's real. We'll take some time, like I said, next Sunday to consider this, particularly as it relates to Satan and what the Bible teaches about Satan. But suffice to say, for us today, for our consideration in Romans chapter 7, what I'd like to kind of highlight is that Paul is going to take no time to try to convince you that the spiritual realm is a thing. He's not going to try to build an argument because the people he was writing to didn't need any convincing. They didn't need anyone to help them understand that this thing was real. They were living it. These are all first-generation followers of Jesus trying to live out their faith in a very pagan and broken area in first-century Rome. So he's not going to take any time to convince you. And isn't it interesting? I think this is consistent in Scripture. It seems that often what you and I desire or even demand that we are convinced of, is incredibly obvious to first century people. What we often desire and demand that we be convinced of, like prove to me that's a thing, first century people and Christians all over the world today need no convincing. What they need instead is what Paul does. Instead of convincing his readers, Paul equips his readers for the spiritual battle that is within every human heart. So, there's a difference. He's not going to take any time to convince you. He's just going to start equipping you. So, just from the outset, I think it's important that we understand this. So, if we're waiting for him to just justify everything that he is about to do and why he needs to equip us, we should understand that his first readers needed no such convincing. Therefore, it's more of a warning for us to understand that this is something that he is going to be equipping us for. Specifically, what he's going to do is two things. He's going to give us a warning, and he is going to give us an encouragement. He's going to give us a warning and he's going to give us an encouragement. He won't talk about the great battle around us, though that's a thing and that's important. What he's going to focus on is the battle within the human heart. So he's not going to focus on the spiritual warfare that is sort of circling all of us and around and out there. He's going to talk about what's going on inside of our hearts. See, because church, there is a battle that we are in, but there is also a battle that is in us. There is a battle that we are in, and there is also a battle within us. And as a relevant aside before we come to this text, biblical scholars are extremely divided over the entire chapter of Romans 7, but in particular this portion about it. It's like no one is getting along in the academic realm about Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Some believe Paul is writing about what his life was like before he became a follower of Christ and all of this I language, his personal storytelling— some believe that this is Paul as a Christian right now. Some believe that Paul is using a literary device, speaking in the first person, but speaking about all of Israel. So it could not be more confusing what even people think that he is talking about. So we'll do our best to keep it simple and to focus on this spiritual war that's going within. And keeping in mind, we've been asking a few questions in Romans 7. First, in verses 1 through 6, we ask, where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a believer? You remember this from two weeks ago, from two Sundays ago. And we arrived, what the Bible teaches us is that the Mosaic Law is a signpost pointing us to Christ and it's a revealer of sin. So it is good for us to know the law of God because we want to be pointed to Christ and we want to know what sin is. Verses 7 through 12, we ask, How can the law be holy if we are released from the law? What the Bible says is that it exposes our need to be saved from outside of the law. So, how can the law be holy and we be released from it is because we were saved from outside of it. Today, In verses 13 through 25, we'll ask a third question in this chapter. How are we to be delivered from this conflict within us of the law and sin? How are we to be delivered from the conflict that is warring within us between the law and sin? And the answer, I think, will be found in this single warning and this one encouragement. Paradoxically, the more we mature, the more sin is exposed. The more we mature, the more sin is exposed. That's the warning. The warning is that the longer you follow Jesus, you will not discover that you need him less and less, church in the square. You will discover what? That you need him more and more and more. So the more you follow Jesus, the more you mature, the more sin is exposed. That's the warning. But here's the encouragement. The more we mature, the less power sin has over us. The more we mature, the less sin has power over us. Over us, or as Dr. Timothy Keller put it in his commentary on this passage, the more holy we become, the less holy we feel. The more holy we become, the less holy we feel. And I see some of you even nodding your heads and understanding this. Like the longer I follow Jesus, the less deserving I discover myself to be of his grace and his affection and his love. And this is what this text will teach us today about what this looks like. So let's read the text and then ask for the Lord's help. Here's Romans chapter 7, verse 13 and following. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, Paul says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, to want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within, within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord so then i myself serve the law of god with my mind but with my flesh i serve the law of sin this is the word of the lord we say thanks be to god let's pray heavenly father we're desperate for your word because in the middle of confusion, we need to know the truth. In the middle of chaos, we need clarity. In the middle of brokenness, we need to see your beauty. And so we thank you that your word promises and has never been denied in bringing forth those things to those who have ears to hear. So give us ears to hear this morning, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Now, spiritual warfare manifests on a particular road. There's a particular path, if you will, where spiritual warfare shows up, and it's on this road of maturity. Spiritual warfare always manifests on the road of maturity. Let me me say it again because this needs to get anchored in our souls this morning. Spiritual warfare manifests on the road of spiritual maturity. In other words, there is a tried and true way to avoid spiritual warfare. Don't become more like Christ. If you do not want to face spiritual warfare, there is a clear way that you can avoid all conflict in the spiritual life. Don't become more like Jesus. If you are not maturing in your faith, you will not be bothered by the spiritual realm because you have already been blinded by it. You will not be bothered by spiritual warfare if you are not maturing in Jesus your faith. See, when we enter into the arena of the spiritual battle, what we are, the reason we do that is because we are actually pursuing Christ. So, contrary to popular Christian assumption, obedience always leads to conflict in this life. Obedience leads to conflict. Why? Because God is holy and the world is not. So, when you become more like Jesus in a world that is opposed to him, you are destined and I am destined for conflict. So the closer that we draw to the will and word of God, the further apart we move from the values and systems and powers of this world. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? The world is not as it should be. Because of sin, it moves in opposition to the way that God has created it, according to his will and according to his word. So obedience always leads to conflict. Let me, let me give us a primary example of this that, that comes up constantly in my own spiritual formation and as I meet with many of you. So please meet me in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and 4. So if you're still in Romans we you've got an old school Bible, turn to the left. Matthew 3 verse 13. We'll start there and we'll move on into 4 in just a minute. Matthew 3 verse 13 through 17 reads this way. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest, him and behold, the voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased." Notice, Jesus understands his baptism as a matter of righteousness. He says that we're going to do this in order to fulfill righteousness. In other words, this is what his heavenly Father wants him to do and has instructed him to do. So Jesus is not doing this on his own accord. He has not come up with the idea. He is obeying his heavenly father. Jesus is obeying his father. Not only so, but when Jesus got out of the water, water, the father speaks favor and love over him. So in summary, the son obeys the father and the father blesses the son. Now, if you're reading this story for the first time, or if you can imagine reading this for the very first time, we might now expect Jesus to get to kick it for a while. He's been baptized, and usually after baptisms, we go and have brunch. People give us cards, and they celebrate with us, right? And then we get to rest for the rest of that Sunday and just bask in the goodness of that particular ceremony, right? He's done something that God wanted him to do, and so now we presumed he deserves some chill time, perhaps a nap, perhaps a party, perhaps a blue ribbon, right? Well, look at Matthew chapter 4. Verse one, the very next scene, and that then makes sure that we understand this is what happens immediately after. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came. This is unexpected on a couple of points. This is not what we would have done, this is not what we would desire. First, Jesus doesn't take a nap after his baptism. He goes to war. Not only so, secondly, Jesus didn't take a wrong turn somewhere. This wasn't because now he is disobeying God. Notice, how does he get to the wilderness? How does he begin to confront Satan? What does the text say? Then Jesus was what? Led by the, what's it say? Spirit. Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. So the Son obeys the Father, the Father blesses the Son, and then the Spirit leads the Son to war. Are are you picking up yet where we're going? Where where the Lord is beginning to instruct us and help us to understand, completely contrary to our consciousness and how we would even desire this thing, instead of getting a, a reward, an earthly reward for obedience, obedience always leads to conflict. See, we often believe and are even motivated by the idea that if we work hard and obey God in a moment or in a season, then we'll be rewarded with a good job or or with marriage or with a solid retirement portfolio, right? We think these are the blessings of God that he gives to those who obey him. But instead, when we open up the scriptures, what we see is that obedience leads to conflict. Are you with me yet? This is what is at war within Paul. This is what is, is the battle within all who follow Jesus. And this can be confusing. Look again back at Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure see when conflict comes we ask questions don't we when things don't go our way we ask questions whether in our community or in our prayer life or maybe just in our own like bitter rage within ourselves and it's natural that if and when obedience leads to conflict that we ask if god's law or god's word is the one that brought us to death is this what has led in other words is is the law the problem is god's word the problem that's what Jesus may have been tempted to ponder. Father, I thought you were pleased, right? I thought you were pleased with me, and now I can't eat and have to face the devil? Spirit, did we take a wrong turn somewhere? You ever feel like the Spirit of God took a wrong turn somewhere? See, that's what Paul is musing here. Did the law bring death to me? As before, the answer is the emphatic no. Instead, Paul identifies sin as the purveyor of death, not the law. Nevertheless. He says that sin used the law, or sin produced death through the law. In fact, through the law, the written words and will of God, Paul says that sin grew beyond measure. Now, remember, the law flows from the character and nature of God, and the law's job is to reveal sin and death, to tell us the truth about ourselves. So it makes sense that the more I know of God through his law, the more of my sin and deadly condition becomes clear to me. That's what Paul is warning his readers, so they won't be surprised, so they won't feel alone, so they won't grow faithless. So he says to them, the more we mature, the more sin is exposed. This goes against our Instagrammable concepts of faith, doesn't it? So you know what I mean, that we believe that growing up in Jesus is about doing more and more good and less and less bad things and then getting some sort of like earthly reward at the end of it. But a heavenly pursuit does not end in an earthly reward. A heavenly pursuit does not end in an earthly reward. And a lot of times, this is what we think. Earthly pursuits end in earthly rewards, and heavenly pursuits end in what? Heavenly rewards. So we should not be surprised, and we should be really thankful that he has something better for you than a good retirement portfolio. He has something better for you than marriage. He has something better for you than children. He has something better for us than what we could possibly conceive or imagine. He has himself to give us. See, that's what the Apostle Paul experienced. This is what he is teaching. He warns that the will and word of God increasingly unearths the depths of our depravity. The law is not the problem. God is not the problem. The war within us with sin is our issue. See, the more that we obey God's word and follow him, the more we will be led into this spiritual conflict. And there are at least, I think, two reasons for this. Why does it get harder the more we follow Jesus, to put it one way? First, the evil one hates when you become like Jesus. He doesn't want you to become like Jesus. He hates his kingdom shrinks as the Lord's kingdom expands. So the more like Jesus we become, the more of a threat we become to this evil kingdom. Second, so that's the first reason why this happens. Secondly, God is not interested in making you better. Many of us, I think, are content with being a little bit better than we previously were. I don't sin the same way. I have a little bit more wisdom than I used to. I do a little bit better job with my kids. We are content with better. God says he's going to make you holy. So we need to repent of the demonic lie that all God promises us is that we'll be a little bit better tomorrow. A little less sinful, a little, a little less broken. No, He says, I'm going to make you whole and I'm going to make you holy. That's why the more we obey Him, the more we look like Him, the more He produces righteousness in us, the more sin is weeded out. It's it's like the illustration that the old preacher used to give, that the closer I get to light, I don't find out that I'm cleaner and cleaner the closer I get to it. Are you with me? The closer I get to light, the more the dark crevices and brokenness and imperfections of my soul and my character are revealed. But the closer I get to light, the more I want to be healed the more I want those things to be in the light, because the light actually produces life in me. The light is not the problem, my sin is. The light's just telling me the truth. Listen to how Paul goes on. The more we mature, the more sin is exposed, even if it feels chaotic at times. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions for i do not know what i want or i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate now if i do what i don't want i agree with the law that it is good so now it is no longer i who do it but sin that dwells within me for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for i have a desire have the have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Take a breath. If you are feeling confused, you are in good company. This passage is emotional. It's hard to follow, but isn't this what the war is like? It can feel confusing. It can feel conflicting. And Satan is a wonderful gaslighter making us question what is good, what is right, what is up, what is down, what is truth, what is a lie. See, one of the reasons it's hard to follow this passage, at least literarily, is because Paul uses this single word six times in six verses. It's the word four. He keeps getting deeper and deeper within his logic. And what we find at the sort of base level, underneath that conflict, underneath the battle that he is experiencing, what comes to mind at the very end is that sin dwells within us, which is causing the conflict. Sin is underneath all of this and confusing us. So, the more that we mature, the more that sin is exposed. This is what Paul is revealing. Church, God is going to lead you to obedience. He promised to teach us and empower us to obey. He never leads you somewhere where you don't need Him. He never leads you to a place where you no longer have to depend on Him. He never leads you to a place where you do not need to be utterly dependent. And like Jesus obedience, and the Spirit will always lead us to conflict. This is the warning. That's what Paul is warning us. Contrary to what we think, it's not going to get easier, it's going to get more difficult. But we also have a promise, a promise from God that he says, I'll be with you. Therefore, sin will have less and less power over you, and that's the encouragement. So having established this, now Paul moves to verse 21. Look at it. So I find See, as confusing as it may be for Paul to experience this inner conflict or to go through this, he's actually able to talk about it. Many of us in our conflict, we remain silent, don't we? We don't talk to anybody. We don't actually go to someone and just go, I'm confused. We we like like doing this thing where we figure it out and then make it public. We go, here's what I was in the middle of, Here's when I didn't know what was going on. But now, now that I'm clean, now that I'm good, I want to share with you all what's going on. Paul is coming to us in the mess. I do what I don't want to do. And the thing I do want to do, I don't do. And I don't do what I want to do, but I want to do what I don't do. Right? He's all of this stuff. Like, what are you talking about? And yet at the same time, it's like, I kind of know what you're going through. I, I know that confusion. I know that frustration. I know that pain. I know that sin lying down. In the heart of it all. He gives us language church for the battle. He gives us understanding. He's growing in wisdom in the middle of the battle. See, when we first enter this kind of, of battle, this kind of conflict, when you're a brand new follower of Jesus, none of it makes sense. You don't have language for it. you think God has abandoned you. You think, God, was this really what you wanted? I thought you were pleased with me. I thought you loved me. Spirit, did we take a wrong turn somewhere? See, what Paul is doing is not throwing his hands up in defeat. He's actually lifting his eyes up to be rescued. This is why he ends with this question, who will save me from this body of death? He's looking for salvation, not from within himself, but from outside of himself. So the battle that is going on within you, you cannot win from within you. you have to be, it has to be won from outside of you. See, the more we mature, the less power sin has over us. We're given language in God's Word, and we're given clarity about where our rescue comes from, not from within us, but from outside of us, not through the law, but outside of the law, the fulfillment of the law. See, this encouragement then is multifaceted. In the middle of spiritual conflict or this war within us, in the face of persistent sin, we can and must acknowledge our wretchedness. That's what Paul does. He's like, I'm wretched, so someone else needs to save me. We can and must confess the fact that we can't save ourselves, that we can't settle the conflict. We can't rescue ourselves or secure spiritual victory. And in our surrender, in our surrender is where we find our salvation. In other words, we learn to fight sin by not fighting sin on our own, but by surrendering to the Lord. See, the more we mature, the less power sin has over us. Why? Because the more and more power Jesus has over us the more and more we recognize his lordship over all things, outside, around, and in our hearts. That's how Paul answers his own question. Who will save me or deliver me from this body of death? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God within my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin This is what maturity is all about. Contrary to our popular conception of it, growing in maturity in Christ is not you and I becoming more and more independent. It's actually the opposite. It's increasing dependency upon Jesus. The more dependent you become, the more mature you become. The more mature you become, the more dependent you become. So this is why we need to stop comparison. Can I just holler at you for a minute about this? We're real easy to find like a brother or sister in our church and just go, wow, that person is really holy. That person is really righteous. And it's really good to see God at work in others' lives. But sometimes we take that on as shame and go, oh, I should be getting that now too. Or I should be the way that person is or the way that that mother mothers, the way that father parents, the way those kids act, the way that those people serve one another. That's not the gauge of maturity, how much you are like your brother or sister. The gauge of maturity is how dependent you are on Jesus Christ, the Lord. So how dependent are you? Who will save you? Jesus. Who will help you? Jesus who will care for you, Jesus, who loves you, Jesus. These realities and truths begin to shape our mindset and even our Christian imagination, our understanding of all things, that the more we mature, the less sin has power over us. Do you see, we are delivered from the conflict of sin, not by outsmarting sin, not by conquering sin on our own, not by being stronger than sin, and not by ignoring sin. Rather, we are delivered from sin when we stop fighting this battle on our own. Because the more we mature, the less power sin has over us because the more power Jesus has over us. That's the encouragement. The warning is that you'll discover more and more sin along the way. The encouragement is that sin has less and less power over you because Jesus has power over you. See, spiritual warfare, as we have said manifest on the road of maturity. We have to check our expectations and be unsurprised when conflict comes our way. It is not God's judgment, but rather conflict is not evidence that God has abandoned us, but rather evidence that God is making us holy in a broken world. It will be hard. This is why you need each other. This is why we need each other. This is why the writer of Hebrews says don't grow weary in gathering together. Don't neglect getting together. You're gonna need each other. In fact, if you have gone a week and you haven't needed your brothers and sisters, it's probably because you're not becoming more like Jesus. Remember, I love you so much. If you have not needed to confess sin this past week, it's probably because you haven't been following Jesus. You're not growing up in him. Because when you grow up in Jesus, it's real clear how dependent you become. Man, I really need my brothers and sisters. Man, I really need to confess my sin. See, there's a clear way to not have to confess sin. There's a clear way to not have to become spiritually mature, or rather to face spiritual conflict. It's don't pursue Jesus. Don't open his word. Don't seek his will. Don't ask for accountability and authenticity within Christian community, because those are the things that will necessarily lead to conflict. Obedience leads to conflict. In the wilderness, the evil one tempts Jesus Three times. Three times. This was a spiritual battle. It is a battle now that all true followers of Jesus encounter. See, when we follow Jesus, we will experience most, if not all, of the things that he experienced yet in his power. Right? So we don't look at Jesus and go, now his life, I get to avoid all of those things. He's saying, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. What was his power? What was his power in the wilderness? Well, in a word, it was dependency. The Savior of the world demonstrated, modeled, and now empowers us to be dependent. How can we say that? Well, each sinful overture that, that Satan or this temptation that Satan put in front of Jesus, Jesus meets with this powerful refrain. Three times he was tempted. Do you know what he said three times? It is written. It is written. It is written. Written, Jesus met sin with dependency on God's word. This is what maturity looks like. Even Jesus didn't face Satan by himself. He faced Satan with his spirit and with God's word. This is how we are and are even delivered from conflict of the law and sin that torment within us. After all, in the, in the wilderness, Jesus was not simply saving himself. He was claiming victory over Satan for all of us. So... May we mature with our eyes open to this increasing exposure of sin, but may we also have hope that in Christ we will less and less see that sin has power over us because in Christ Jesus has more and more power over us because he has won the battle in the wilderness and on the cross. And so, Heavenly Father, help us in this. Help us to be a people who become more and more mature, more and more like your Son, and therefore, Father, encourage us because that means that we will face more and more conflict. I pray for my sisters and brothers who are in the middle of conflict right now. Encourage them. Encourage them through dependency. Encourage them through Your Word. Equip them with your, by Your Spirit with Your Word. Help us to be a people who are willing to shoulder the burden with one another as we fight this battle together. But we don't fight it not understanding or confused about the outcome. We fight a battle knowing the victory has been fully and completely and eternally secured in Jesus Christ. The one who was dependent on the Father and the Spirit and the Word so that we might be dependent upon Him. So anchor us in Jesus today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.